Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening. Uh, we thank you for this time uh, of freedom that we enjoy, that we can assemble together, that we can come before your throne of grace and to uh, petition you in prayer, and that we can have this time to give thanks to you as well for all that you've done for us and for all that you continue to do. Father, we just pray this evening as we take this time to look into your word, as we continue this study in soteriology, that this will be a time of fruitful understanding, uh, that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the biblical text. Father, we pray that we will be challenged by these things that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me go ahead and switch over here so that we are streaming on Facebook so I can get that going. And uh, I have a uh, great appreciation for uh, Mr. Dan Bennett, who uh, helps me maintain all this stuff and uh, works in the background to make sure that everything is operating smoothly. I could not do what I do as effectively without Dan. So big, big thank you, sir. All right, everybody, and let me go ahead and switch over to the study notes as well so that we're all on the same page here. We are picking up in our study on soteriology, and so I'll switch that over there. We are uh, considering uh, the role of God the Son in our salvation. We're looking at the role of God the Son. We looked at the role of God the Father briefly, how he uh, basically... Uh, determined the plan of salvation from eternity past, how he commissioned the Son and sent the Son. And we've looked at how the Son uh, agreed to come into the world. He, uh, he is the Son of God. He is deity. He's the second member of the Trinity. And he came into the world at a point in time nearly 2,000 years ago, and he took upon himself humanity. As I mentioned before in, the, uh, in theology, we call that the doctrine of the hypostatic union. He was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and uh, came into the world, and he was minus Adam's original sin, and he was also minus a sin nature. So he was conceived uh, perfect humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and, uh, and so when he came into the world, he came into the world perfect, uh, minus any contamination of sin, uh, no Adam's original sin, no sin nature. And we also looked at a number of passages and how he went his entire life and he lived an absolutely sinless life. We looked at the suffering servant aspect of Christ. We'll look at that again here in a few weeks when we uh, focus on the cross. We're going to spend some time uh, looking at the cross itself. We also looked at the humility of Christ, the fact that he humbled himself uh, and became obedient even to the point of death upon a cross. And so tonight we're picking up and we're looking specifically at the section related to Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and we will also look at his ascension and session in heaven. Uh, this is not an exhaustive study by any means. One can go and pick up systematic theologies. Uh, and currently the ones that I'm using the most is going to be Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer's eight-volume systematic theology. That's a uh, one of my key textbooks. Also, Dr. Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology, which had the privilege of sitting in on a few classes with him and really enjoyed his teaching. A very gentle man. I really, really like his uh, style of teaching. 
Also, Dr. Robert Leitner, we've been using his Handbook of Evangelical Theology. Again, these books will mine these uh, subjects a little bit uh, more deeply, but we're just hitting those key verses, and of course I'm chasing rabbit trails here and there, and we will be looking at a lot of Scripture this evening. So, uh, last time we met, we talked about the atonement and how Christ's death upon the cross was a penal, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice. Penal means that he bore the penalty for our sins, and he died a substitutionary death. He died in our place, the just for the unjust, Peter tells us. And we looked at the Greek prepositions huper and the stronger preposition anti, but both communicate the idea of substitution, that Christ died in our place, and his death satisfied every righteous demand of the Father. So tonight we're picking up, we're going to look at Jesus' resurrection. Now, as I was putting this together and thinking about this, I thought about the passage in Acts 1, where if you look at the introduction to Acts 1, really uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts uh, were both written by Luke, and it really should be considered like a two-volume set. The Gospel would be like volume 1, and the book of Acts uh, covers the first 30 years of church history, and so that would be considered a volume 2. But Luke tells us here in Acts 1.1, he says, The first account, that would be his Gospel of Luke, He said, I composed Theophilus, uh, and that's who he's writing to. Now, if you read Luke verses chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you realize that Luke writes his gospel to this man. We don't know who Theophilus was, uh, but uh, nonetheless, he was probably some dignitary of some sort, but uh, Luke writes his two books to this man, And, uh, and this is the second volume here. But he says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. uh, After he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And notice verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering. Now this would be talking about the resurrection of Christ. To these... He, uh, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And so you have Jesus uh, in resurrection body, uh, living in time and space, and he's interacting, he's interacting with the apostles and others, as we're going to see. And when he says here, by many convincing proofs, Uh, This is objective information. This is not subjective liver quiver sort of stuff. This is objective information, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail. In fact, I might even chase a rabbit trail on the subject of epistemology. Uh, So hold on to your hats for a little bit, and we'll 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 see if uh, if if we don't go down that that rabbit trail. So Jesus' resurrection is an essential element in soteriology. In fact, every writer of the New Testament assumes that Jesus was resurrected from the grave and treat his resurrection as an event that took place in time and space. And that's important to understand uh, because there are some that would like to treat uh, the events of Jesus, his life, his miracles, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all as sort of this mystical, mythical sort of stuff. And, uh, and that's liberal theology, 
that does not take the scripture in a straightforward way as a as an historical record and that's the way it's presented it's presented as historical narrative it's it's presented as uh historical accounts we might even call it a deposition uh written deposition uh concerning the life of Christ and so these are uh, events that took place in time and space and that's how the bible treats uh, the Lord Jesus and how it treats the events of his life. And so that's exactly the way that, uh, that we will take it as well in our study. Now, Paul wrote that Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. In fact, he talks about the Scriptures twice here. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. And there we talked about that use of the Greek preposition huper, translated for, that Christ died for as a substitute in our place. He bore, he died for our sins. And notice it is according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Notice he says it a second time, according to the scriptures. So the resurrection of Christ, again, is treated as an historical event. And 1 Corinthians 15.20 says that he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. And Romans 6.9 tells us that having been raised from the dead, uh, that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. And so we draw a distinction, and I've done this before, but that's all right, I'll, I'll cover it briefly here. And that is the distinction between resuscitation and resurrection. Uh we see examples in the Bible where people were resuscitated. They were brought back to life. Uh, this examples in the Old Testament uh, with Elijah. We can think of uh, in the New Testament, Jesus, people that Jesus uh, brought back to life. One can think of in John chapter 11, uh, Lazarus, for example, and that he had been in the tomb for several days. And uh, after he was uh, re- uh, resuscitated and brought back to life, uh, they had to unwrap him because he couldn't even take off his own wrappings. And then you get over into John chapter 12 and you realize that the Pharisees want to kill him. <laughs> and that poor Lazarus, he gets brought back to life only to wind up being a wanted man uh, by the uh, religious leadership of the day. But nonetheless, these people that were brought back to life died again. They were subject to physical death again. So we draw a distinction between resuscitation and resurrection. Resurrection means that you will never die again. And so it is, it is to immortal physical life. Now we have two Old Testament characters who I think serve as pictures of the rapture who did not die, and that would be Enoch and Elijah. Neither one of them tasted death. Uh, that's another subject for another day, but nonetheless we have these examples. Uh, but nonetheless, when we talk about Jesus having been raised from the dead, uh, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep and again will never die again. Now, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to numerous persons over a period of 40 days. Over a period of 40 days, namely, he appeared to Mary Magdalene and other women. In fact, his appearance to the women uh, were the first people that he appeared uh, to, and this was after his resurrection. One can think of in John chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. It says, so the disciples went went away again to their own homes, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I did not know and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, this, this happens a couple times in the Gospels, where you have people that meet Jesus, but, but you know, are there some, is there some sort of blinders on them? Uh, was she weeping? Was her eyes watering? Could she not see clearly? We don't know. But nonetheless, she did not know that it was him. And then in verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And notice, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then apparently she reached out and clutched him, and one can imagine this, there's great emotion going on here uh, that she has, great affection she has for the Lord. And uh, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. <laughs> you know, I had to kind of tell her, okay, let, let go, um, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now, we're going to talk about the ascension tonight, but here he says, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And then Mary Magdalene, verse 18, came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So he appears to uh, Mary Magdalene. He also appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That was another group. Now, remember that these are historical persons, historical events, and these are appearances of Christ after his resurrection. Uh, Now, on the road to Emmaus, this is very interesting because you have these two disciples here, and it says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. Uh, which was a couple hours away, uh, as far as the journey goes, uh, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So Luke gives us the distance here. And if you're walking at a at a comfortable pace, and if you're having conversation with people, you're you're you know you're not moving along at a at a clip. You're you're probably more of a casual stroll. And uh, and so we're looking, you know, a couple hours uh, walking distance here, comfortably. Verse 14, and they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. So Jesus just comes alongside and just starts walking with them as they're traveling along. And one can imagine this scenario. But notice verse 16, it says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So here we have a clear case where uh, there, there, there's a, there's a, there's some blinders on here that they do not know who he is. Verse 17, it says, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And so Jesus engages them in conversation about what they're talking about. And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? Now, obviously he knows, right? This is the Lord we're talking about here. Obviously knows, but the question is designed to draw them into a conversation. And it's, a, it's very gentle, uh, but he's just engaging them in conversation. Now, what they don't know is they're about to get the Bible lesson of a lifetime. That's, that's what they don't know. Uh, so they'll know afterwards. 
Uh, but he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how, our, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that, he, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. So this is the day when Christ has been resurrected, resurrected here on the third day. So they're saying, look, this is the third day. So they give us some time frame of the events. Verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. So this is probably Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and they come and they've, you know, they've heard this information. And so they're just communicating to Jesus what they heard. Of course, Jesus knows because he was there. He spoke to them, so he knows. Uh, but he says, All, But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came saying that they also had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Oh, and that he was alive. Uh, and some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Now, Jesus uh, kind of scolds them a little bit here because they should have been thinking doctrinally. They should have been thinking biblically, and they weren't. And he chastises them gently, but he does. Notice verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe, notice all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, and then he says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now, Jesus could have opened their eyes and revealed himself and just had a one-on-one -on -one discussion, but I find it very fascinating what he does here. He points them to the Word of God. He points them to the Scriptures. Verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. So as they're walking this seven miles... On this road to Emmaus, as they're walking, Jesus is giving them a Bible lesson. Now, I would have loved to have been there with a digital recorder. I would have just, you know, stood, stood a little bit at the back, just within earshot, have a little shotgun mic, you know, uh, you know on, a, on a boom arm, and, uh, and just record it, you know, and I could, have, I could have, you know, held up, you know. But just to be able to record that lesson, and just to be able to hear uh, exactly how he handled the scriptures. And of course, this was just, you know, it was a fabulous Bible lesson. But I find it interesting that Jesus points them to the scriptures um, because that is the basis for faith and conduct. Faith, what is believed, conduct, how we carry ourselves, how we think, how we speak, how we act. But it says again, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And it says, and as they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. So again, he, he's, he's kind of baiting them a little bit, but he acts like he's going to keep going on. But they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Verse 31, then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Uh, now, I'm sure that that must have been a tremendous aha moment. But their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and it says, and he vanished from their sight. So, bam, immediately he's gone. He disappears. And in resurrection body, Jesus can do that. 
And there's a lot of things he can do in resurrection body. He can eat or not eat. Uh, he can suddenly appear in rooms. Apparently he can walk through walls and uh, he can appear or disappear uh, just at will. Uh, but it says, and he vanished from their sight. And I love verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Now, I love that because to me, that is a valid uh, experience among somebody who loves the Lord, who loves his word, and when they hear the word of God being taught verse by verse, or doctrinally, as I'm covering it here, uh, they too can have that same experience. I've had that many times. I've been listening to Bible lessons, driving around in my car, listening to Bible lessons from, uh, from, you know, from a Bible teacher, and just to hear them expound the word of God. And uh, I'll tell you, it gets me fired up. I mean, it does. It, it, that's exactly what it does. And I think that's what we have here. But nonetheless, they saw the risen Lord. Now, Jesus also appeared to the disciples without Thomas. And then he appeared to the disciples with Thomas. Now, in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 25, it says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, uh, when the doors were shut where the disciples were, and notice they're in hiding. Uh, it says, For fear of the Jews... It says, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So Jesus suddenly appears in their midst. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So this is objective. They're laying their eyes on him. Now Thomas is going to say, look, because Thomas is not here. And Thomas is going to ask to be able to touch the Lord. And this is tangible. This is objective. This is, this is right there in front of them. Uh, and so verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the Holy Spirit in special ministry would not begin until the church began in Acts chapter 2. So this is a special endowment of the Spirit given by the Lord Jesus to the apostles here uh, to sustain them uh, for this short period of time until the church age begins and the Spirit would then come upon all believers. And Jesus then says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven, have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, verse 24, one of the 12 called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. So notice here we have Jesus appearing to the disciples without Thomas. But then in verse 25, so the disciples were saying to him, so here's the rest of the disciples, the other 10, they meet Thomas. And they tell him, we have seen the Lord. So now we've had Mary Magdalene, we've had Mary, we've had these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now we have the disciples without Thomas, and they all say, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas, and he's called Doubting Thomas, and that's probably not a very good moniker. I don't know that it's a true thing, but I understand why they say that because of what he says next. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Uh, and after eight days, here we have verse 26, now he appears to the disciples, um, it says, and after eight days, so now we have this element of time going on, you see, and so that, that's, and don't miss that, because we, again, we want to understand these things as taking place in time and space, that these are real people, real historical events, and so we don't want to, uh, you know, just sort of gloss over these things. So verse 26 again, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. 
And Jesus came to the doors, having been shut, and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So now, here the doors have been shut, and Jesus again just just suddenly appears in the room. And then he says to Thomas, now this is interesting too, because uh, he must have known, I mean, being the Son of God, he he knew what Thomas said. Uh, Even though Thomas wasn't there, he knew what Thomas said. And by the way, he treats Thomas in grace. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't scold him. He treats him in grace. And he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, very profound statement, right? And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Uh, And then Jesus also, and I won't go into this passage, you can chase this down on your own, but Jesus also appeared to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21. And so when he appeared to the disciples there, uh, he had uh, breakfast with them. On the seashore, there was a fire, and they were uh, cooking some fish, and Jesus had uh, a dialogue with them. But again, these are events that took place again in time and space. In fact, if you look over uh, John 21, 1, it says, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Again, historical people, historical places. But when he says, after these things, so again, we have chronology, of events with these appearances, and these are all very intentional. So he appeared to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and then he appeared to Peter, James, and more than 500 brethren at once. Now, I love this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, because it says here, well, let me go back to verse 4, it says, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, after he was raised, notice verse 5, and that he appeared, he appeared to Cephas, that would be to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and notice then he says, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, this is fascinating to me because, you know, here Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. So this is a big gathering of people. I mean, 500 people, that's, that's a pretty good-sized group. And he appears to them at one time. So they all see him. And then Paul says something very fascinating here. He says, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Now, asleep here is a euphemism for death. We use that because death is kind of a shocking word and we don't like it. It's a little disturbing. So we have euphemisms for it. You know, we, we say they passed away or they graduated or, you know, if they're a believer, we say that. Or, you know, we use the term sleep. Well, they did too. But he says, most of whom remain until now. And what he's doing is he's making a case here because there's what we're going to see in a moment is that Paul is going to address some Christians in Corinth who are basically saying that there was no resurrection. And so Paul is front-loading his, his argument here as he's about to address them on their uh, doctrinal uh, aberrancy, as they've deviated in this particular doctrinal matter. And so he's front-loading his discussion. And so he says, look, that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. In other words, if you don't believe me, you can go and talk to these people. Most of them are still alive. 
Some have fallen asleep, he says, that's true, but most of them are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, you can go down the street and you can talk to, you can talk to uh, Schroeder and you can talk to Linus and Lucy and you can talk to Pigpen and you can, you can talk to these people. They're there. They saw, they were among the 500, they saw the risen Lord. And so he says, look, if, if, if you're questioning me, go and talk to these people. They were eyewitnesses. And I love this because, again, it deals with the resurrection of Christ as an objective historical event and not something that is predicated on subjective feelings or impressions. And, uh, and in, 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 the, in the realm of philosophy, there's a, there's a branch of philosophy called epistemology. And epistemology basically is the field of philosophy that, that poses the question, how do you know what you know? How, how, it pertains to the acquisition of knowledge, of information. How do you come to acquire information? And uh, unfortunately today, many people, their walk with the Lord is predicated on subjective impressions rather than on objective truth of God's word. And, um, and what uh, Paul is doing here is he's basically arguing that the resurrection of Christ is an objective event uh, that can be verified by people who saw him and who recorded uh, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, who recorded these things, and that this can be treated as historical narrative, as fact, as objective information. Now, I've got uh, a hymnal over here, and, uh, and I think about the hymn, and I've covered this before, but I'll read it just to be very precise. But I can think about the hymn, uh, He Lives. Now, I grew up listening to this hymn and singing it uh, in the church, you know, and it says, you know, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Uh, He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. And, of course, the lyrics are quite beautiful, but the author of the hymn is claiming knowledge, and the knowledge that he's claiming is that Jesus lives, he walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He's making some claims to knowledge. But then he has this imaginary interlocutor, this person who poses a question to him. And the question in the final line is, you, this imaginary person, ask me, the one who's making this claim to uh, the, 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 that Christ lives, you ask me how I know he lives. So you see, you see what the question is there. The question is, how, you're making this claim that he lives, and so here's this imaginary person that the hymn writer puts, puts in there that you uh, are hearing me make these claims, and you're asking me how I know he lives. And the answer comes back, he lives within my heart. Now, it is true that Christ does come to dwell within us, as does the Father, as does the Holy Spirit, all three members of the Godhead indwell indwell the believer. That's true. But that's not how the Scripture treats the resurrected Christ. In other words, what this man is doing, this hymn writer, is he's asking this person over here who's questioning his claim to the resurrected Christ, uh, he's asking him to trust his claim Uh, based upon subjective information that is not verifiable. Because, come on, I I can't look into your heart. I can't see that. You see? So that's subjective. That's subjective information because I can't verify that. Okay? Uh, By the way, when I am singing this hymn in church, uh, I always change the last line when I'm singing it. 
And so when he says, you ask me how I know he lives, out of my mouth comes because the scripture says. And so I change it. (laughs) And that's just me. But then I think about the children's hymn, Jesus Loves Me. And I grew up with this one, right? And And the hymn starts out, and I love this. Jesus loves me. Now, now there's a claim to knowledge here. There's this claim that Jesus loves me. And then the hymn writer says, this I know. See, it's making a claim to knowledge, to know something. And what is it that the hymn writer is claiming to know? That Jesus loves me. And then he says, for the Bible tells me so. See? And that's what the hymn writer does here. He switches uh, the, well, he makes the basis for his knowledge not a subjective, unverifiable impression, but it is predicated on objective information because you can go to the Bible and you can read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him and so on. And you can look at that and you can objectively say, that's what that says. And so I love that hymn because it makes a claim to knowledge. Well, see, when you're looking at the Bible, the Bible presents the resurrected Christ as objective and verifiable. And for those who were living at the time of the resurrection, who saw the risen Lord, Paul's whole argument here is, look, Jesus appeared to all these people. He appeared to Cephas, then to the the 12, and he doesn't even name everybody. I mean, we've already looked at uh, uh, Mary and, uh, and Mary Magdalene, and we've looked at the two disciples. Cleopas was the name of one of them on the road to Emmaus, and probably others. You know, what we have here are just uh, enough accounts that it verifies it by multiple witnesses. But he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared uh, as to one untimely born. He appeared to me also. Now, that would be Acts chapter 9. That would be on the road to Damascus when the Lord appears to him at that time. Um, And then also he appears uh, to the disciples at at the Mount of Olives. And then after his appearances, uh, he ascended into heaven. And so the, uh, and I'll deal with this here in a little bit. But the point is, is that you have Jesus appearing over a period of 40 days to multiple persons until finally he's caught up to heaven. And the disciples got to see that as well. So going back to the notes here, it is recorded that God the Father, according to Ephesians 1.20, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now remember that when we talked about Christ in hypostatic union, that when the hypostatic union occurred, that is the union between God and man, the theanthropic person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is undiminished deity, combined together forever with perfect humanity, that when the union occurred, that the union is perpetual. And so Jesus remains in hypostatic union for all eternity. But he he ascended bodily into heaven. And uh, he has been seated in the heavenly places. That's where he's at right now. Uh, Now, Ralph Earl notes uh, the importance of Jesus' resurrection as follows. He says, without the resurrection, the crucifixion would have been in vain. It was the resurrection which validated the atoning death of Jesus and gave it value. Paul describes it strikingly this way, who was delivered over for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. 
He goes on, he says, The resurrection of Jesus proved that his sacrifice for sins had been accepted. The whole redemptive scheme would have fallen apart without it. For by his resurrection, Jesus became the first fruits of a new race, a new humanity. End quote. And then quoting from Ryrie here, Charles Ryrie from his basic theology, he says, In the classic passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, Christ's death and resurrection are said to be of first importance. The gospel is based on two essential facts. A Savior died and he lives. The burial proves the reality of his death. He did not merely faint, only to be revived later. He died. The list of witnesses proves the reality of his resurrection. He died and was buried. He rose and was seen. And Paul wrote of that same twofold emphasis in Romans 4.25. He was delivered over for our offenses and raised for our justification. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel, says Ryrie. He goes on, he says, If Christ did not rise, then our witness is false, our faith is without meaningful content, and our prospects for the future are hopeless. If Christ is not risen, then believers who have died would be dead in the absolute sense without any hope of resurrection. And we who live could only be pitied for being deluded into thinking there is a future resurrection for them. End quote. And I agree with Ryrie that the resurrection of Jesus is an essential element of the Christian gospel. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15.1, Paul says, Now I preach to you, brethren, the gospel. And that translates the Greek noun euangelion. Now, euangelion is a compound word. The EU prefix means good or well, and you see it like in a eulogy a good word, eulageo, a good word, or the name Eugene, somebody who is well-born. But that E-U prefix means well or good. And um, uh, angelion is the word for message. We see at its core the word for like an angel. But here euangelion means good news or good message. So Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Now that's another thing, that when it comes to the gospel, the gospel can be communicated. It can be communicated verbally, it can be communicated in writing, uh, and the content of the gospel uh, he gives in verses 3 and 4, where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. And notice he says that this is according to the scriptures. So this is based on, again, objective information and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to to the twelve, and so on. But you have that basic content of the gospel message that we preach, and that pertains to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that he was seen by many. Now, believing the gospel message means accepting this information as true, that it is historical facts. So it means accepting the information as true and then trusting in Christ as one Savior. Trusting in Christ as one Savior. Uh, Here, quoting uh, according to R.B. Theme Jr., and this is taken from his uh, Bible Doctrine Dictionary. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 defines the boundaries of the gospel. 
beginning with the work of Christ and ending with his resurrection. He says, any gospel message that strays from the cross or denies Jesus' resurrection from physical death is inaccurate and out of bounds, end quote. And I agree with him. I think he's correct. Now, amazingly, amazingly, there were some at the church in Corinth who taught that there is no resurrection of the dead. You see, some false doctrine uh, was floating around in the church at Corinth. Now, this is just one of a multitude of problems. I mean, the church at Corinth, they were a carnal group. <laughs> they were believers. In fact, Paul opens 1 Corinthians. He calls them saints, hagios. And a saint is just a synonym for a Christian. That's all it is, just a synonym for a Christian. Okay, it's not this super classification of super righteous, super holy uh, believer, no. Uh, the Corinthians are saints. You we're saints. They're St. Nancy. We have St. Cherry in the next room. We have St. Dan here. I'm St. Steve. You can call me that if you want. Um, but a saint is just a synonym, and that's what the Corinthians were. They were Christians, okay? But by the time you get to 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, look, there are, there are fights and quarrels among you. Uh, you get over to 1 Corinthians 2, he says, verse 6, he says, look, I want to talk to you, I want to communicate uh, information to you, uh, wisdom of God, uh, but he's, and then you get down to 1 Corinthians 3, he says, look, he said, but I could not talk to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to babes in Christ, because they were carnal, they were sarkikos, they were not pneumatikos, and so they were operating according to status quo carnality, their sin nature. And so Paul says, I can't talk to you about spiritual things because you're babies in Christ and you're carnal. You're operating according to your sin nature and not your new nature or the filling of the Holy Spirit. You get over to 1 Corinthians 5 and you have a guy who's uh, uh, sleeping with his father's new wife. What sort of pagan carnality is that? I mean, that's some, some serious stuff going on there. They were taking each other to court. They were filing lawsuits with one another. You get over to 1 Corinthians 15, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, they were coming into the church, and you had people coming in and gobbling up all the food, and then some poor believers show up, and there's nothing left over, and they're hungry. Then you had people that were getting drunk in the church. I mean, the Corinthian church had some problems, okay? And uh, they had some moral problems, they had some spiritual problems, but they also had some doctrinal problems. Now, they were abusing their spiritual gifts. You can read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 on that one. Uh, but Paul addresses the subject of the resurrection here, and apparently there was this false doctrine that was floating around. And uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has not been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because that's what they were saying. Now, Paul goes on here. He addresses this issue head on. You see, Paul said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is useless. Um, and then he goes down into verse 17. He says, for if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So you see what he's doing here. He starts off by talking about what the gospel is, the gospel that he preached concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Then he goes into this whole line of reasoning that says, look, there were hundreds of people that, were saw, that saw him. You have the disciples who saw him, that see, uh, Peter saw him, uh, more than 500 brethren saw him, James saw him, I saw him. Uh, and if you have any question, most of these people are still alive. You can go talk to them. Uh, and yet you have these people saying that there's no resurrection. He says, look, if there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, then what you have believed is a false gospel, and you are still in your sins. 
And so he goes on in verse 15, he says, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. He says in verse 16 again, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is, worth, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Now he gets down into verse 20, and Paul cuts to the chase, and he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, and this is, uh, and this is important, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's essential to salvation, because he conquered sin and death by his resurrection. And of course, because of his resurrection, we are also going to have resurrection bodies. Uh, and Romans 6, 9 again tells us that Christ was raised from the dead uh, never to die again. So by his resurrection, Jesus proved that he overcame sin and death. By his resurrection, he, he proved that he overcame sin and death. And Robert Mounts, who's a, a world-renowned Greek scholar, I like his material, he's got a lot of good stuff. Uh, there's a few things I disagree with him on, but he's very solid for the most part. He says, Having been raised from the dead, Christ cannot die again. His resurrection was unlike that of Lazarus, who had to meet death once again. Notice he's, he noticed what he does there. He recognizes that difference between those who were brought back to life only to die again. But he says Christ's uh, resurrection is not like that. It's not like others. Um, so it wasn't like Lazarus, who had to meet death once again. But Christ's resurrection broke forever the tyranny of death. That cruel master can no longer exercise any power over him. The cross was sin's final move. The resurrection was God's checkmate. The game is over, he says. Sin is forever in defeat. Christ, the victor, died to sin once for all and lives now in unbroken fellowship with God, end quote. Now let me move now into Jesus' ascension and session. Now, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this, but that's all right. We'll get started on it nonetheless. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to many on several occasions, and that's what we've just been talking about. His final appearance was to his apostles. And uh, Luke 24, verses 15 and 51, it says, And he, that's Christ, led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And in Acts 1.9, we're told that he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, Jesus is resurrected bodily, and he ascends into heaven bodily. This is important to understand, because there are some uh, 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 cults out there who argue that Jesus has already returned uh, for his second coming, but he returns spiritually, well, that's not what the Scripture teaches. The, the, the Scripture teaches that Jesus ascended bodily, and when he returns, he's going to return bodily. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, when he returns at the second coming after the seven-year tribulation. He puts down rebellion, human and satanic and demonic, and, uh, and, and then he calls for the birds to have them come and have this big feast. They're going to feast upon the uh, flesh of uh, kings and commanders and horses and so on. It's, a, it's quite a graphic scene. But when he returns, he will return bodily. Uh, so going through on the notes here, it's important to note that Jesus ascended bodily into heaven, 
and that he will return the same way. Jesus' ascension into heaven was the beginning of his session at the right hand of God. Quoting again from Colonel Theme, he says, At his session, the humanity of Christ was crowned with glory and honor and exalted to a position far higher than the angels. The Father put all powers and authorities in subjection to his Son and confirmed the ultimate subjugation of all who oppose him, end quote. So at the ascension of Christ, he was uh, seated, he was crowned with glory and honor. Uh, Hebrews uh, 2.9 tells us that, tells us that he was crowned with glory and honor. And so he is, uh, he is now waiting uh, for this future time when he will return and he will put down all rebellion. See, we're just waiting on this. We're waiting for Christ to return. Now, Jesus, right now, according to 1 Peter 2.22, is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. So that's his current location. So we're talking about Christ after his resurrection, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And, of course, Hebrews 2.9 tells us that he was crowned with glory and honor. And in Revelation 19.16, he holds the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is his title. That is a title that he earned, uh, that he, that, not that he earned, but that was given to him uh, after uh, his resurrection and ascension. So he holds the title now as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that is now his title. Now I have a quote here uh, from um, uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, and this is by Werner Forster. He says, according to uh, Werner Forster, uh, Werner Forster, let me get his name right, Session at the right hand of God means joint rule. It thus implies divine dignity, as does the very fact of sitting in God's presence. And Charles Ryrie, citing him from his uh, systematic theology, he says, By his resurrection and ascension, our Lord was positioned in the place of honor at the right hand of the Father to be head over the church, his body. And then I have a wonderful quote here by Dr. John Wolverd. Um, and uh, I like Wolverd's writings. He's a very, very good Bible scholar, very good Bible teacher. And uh, back in, uh, what was it, 94, I think, I had a privilege of sitting in on a, a few lectures with him. And uh, I, I like Ryrie, just a very gentle man, a very good-natured man, and I, I love that quality about him. Uh, but quoting uh, Wolverd here, here, uh, here, he says, "...in the ascension of the incarnate Christ to heaven..." Not only was the divine nature restored to its previous place of infinite glory, but the human nature was also exalted. Now let me pause for just a moment there, because there's a lot that's packed into that. Remember over in John chapter 17, I think it's verse 5, where Jesus says, uh, where he's, he's, he's reflecting with the Father, and he's talking about going back to the Father and enjoying the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. And so he's reflecting back on that time when he enjoyed this, this relationship with the Father um, from eternity past. And so here, Wolverd sort of captures that, doesn't he? He says, In the ascension of the incarnate Christ to heaven, not only was the divine nature restored to its previous place of infinite glory, but the human nature was also exalted. <clears throat> it, it is now as the God-man that he is at the right hand of God the Father. This demonstrates that infinite glory and humanity are compatible as illustrated in the person of, of Christ and assures the saint 
that though he is a sinner saved by grace, he may anticipate the glory of God in eternity. And uh, that's end quote. Now, I like that. And by the way, there's a lot that we learn about the resurrection of Christ, because remember that uh, eschatologically, when it comes to prophecy, the next event that we're waiting for right now is the rapture of the church. That's the next event on the prophetic horizon. Now, once the church gets raptured up, and this could happen in five minutes, I I'm good. We're all good with that, right? We're all rapture ready. We're all ready to go and meet the Lord in the air. Uh, we can all high five on the way up, be big high five in the sky. And, uh, and so, but nonetheless, if the rapture were to occur, we would have uh, Antichrist would come onto the scene and he would become identified because of his signing a seven year contract with unbelieving Israel. And that begins the prophetic clock ticking for the seven-year tribulation. Christ returns, Revelation 19, at the second, uh, at his second coming. And in Revelation 20, he establishes his kingdom on the earth, and we're given the duration of that for 1,000 years. We are going to return with Christ at the second coming. We are the saints who are going to come back with him at his second coming. And we're going to be in resurrection bodies. Now, they're going to be a people who are alive, who survived the tribulation. They're going to come to faith in Christ, so they're going to have all their sins forgiven, eternal life, gift of righteousness, and they're going to survive the seven-year tribulation. So there's people that you may know right now that if the rapture were to occur, uh, they may be among those who come to faith in Christ during the seven-year tribulation. And after Christ returns, Matthew 25 makes this clear, he will separate the sheep from the goats, and the goats will be, will be cast out. But the sheep are those who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, and they will walk into the millennial kingdom in mortal bodies. And we are going to return with Christ, and we will have a role as servants on the earth during the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years, and we are going to be in resurrected bodies. And you're saying, well, how can resurrected people get along and interact with, uh, with people that are in mortal bodies? Well, Jesus did it for 40 days. While he was in his resurrected body, he was interacting with mortals. And he was eating with them, he was uh, conversing with them, he was walking on the road with them, he was, uh, he was uh, Mary Magdalene was clinging to him, and there was obviously something tangible there, he was suddenly appearing in rooms, he was eating meals. So what we see in the 40 days that Christ was interacting with the disciples in his resurrection body is, is somewhat of a snapshot of, uh, of things that I think that we'll be able to do during the time of the millennial kingdom when we're there in resurrected body. So when you begin to think about these things and you begin to think about the theological extrapolation of these things, it has eschatological significance and, and for us to help us imagine what that's going to be like. But we're going to be in resurrection bodies during the millennial reign of Christ. It's going to be quite fascinating. So again, I'm looking forward to it. <clears throat> especially the older I get, because uh, once I hit my mid-50s, it seemed to be all downhill. You know, they say it's not the years, but the mileage, and I've got a lot of mileage on this old body. I played hard when I was younger. I don't regret that, uh, but I'm paying for it now. And uh, my knees hurt, my back hurt, and my hands hurt, and got arthritis. Nancy's laughing at me. She's enjoying my pain, apparently. Uh, thank you, Nancy. I'm glad you can, uh, you can relate to that. Okay. Well, I, th I think we're all <laughs> relating to that to some degree here. Um, but I'm looking forward to my resurrection body. Uh, no more tears, no more pain. Um, it, you know, it's all gone. So let me get back to the notes here so we can make this on good time. So Ryrie states here, uh, again, I'm citing him from his basic theology. He says, The ascension marked the end of the period of Christ's humiliation and his entrance into the state of exaltation. 
the ascension having taken place, Christ then was ready to begin other ministries in behalf of his own of and of the world, end quote. So Christ right now in heaven has ministry that he's doing for us on earth. And Lewis Berry Chafer notes seven aspects of Jesus' current ministry in heaven. Uh, and here I'm, I've listed these out as, as he has them. He says seven aspects of his present ministry are to be recognized, namely one, exercise of universal authority. He said of himself, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And so when he delegates authority to somebody, it is a true authority that that person has. It's not an assumed authority. It's a delegated authority, and it comes from Christ himself. Uh, but he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He also has headship over all things to the church. He is said to be the head of uh, had, uh, it says here in, in Ephesians 1, and 23, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. You see, we are the body of Christ and the church is first an organism and then it is an organization. It is an organism that consists of all believers globally on the planet because right now, if the rapture were to occur, the church, that is Christians, globally would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. All the buildings would stay on the ground. You see, we use this funny language. We say, I'm going to go to church. Now, I know what people mean by that, but that's really not accurate language. We, we shouldn't be saying, I'm, I'm going to church as though church is over there somewhere and, and we go to it. That's a church building or a property. Uh, rather, we should say the church gathers at such and such a location. You see, that would be more accurate. But Christ, nonetheless, is the head over all things to the church. He also bestowed uh, 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 spiritual gifts. He also bestowed spiritual gifts. I think of in, um, in Ephesians 4 when it says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, what are those gifts that he gave? Well, they're actually gifted persons, uh, persons who have been give, given spiritual gifts, but it's actually the persons themselves. Verse 9, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is himself also uh, he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. See, these are all communication gifts, if you, if you think about it. And, uh, and God gave me the gift of teacher. I didn't ask for it. I didn't even know I had it when I was a young boy when I came to faith in Christ. I had to grow in it. But once I realized what my gift was, then I had to be responsible with it. I had to get after it. I had to start uh, going to school, had to start getting an education, had to start learning the original languages, had to study history and theology and philosophy, and I had, to, I had to devote myself to this. And then you spend literally thousands and thousands of dollars on a library uh, buying books because you have to have a library to do your study. And, and this is just all in preparation. Uh, why? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up, of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature 
man, because one cannot grow up apart from learning God's word. You cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. So we study it that we might uh, learn it. But when Christ ascended, he gave uh, spiritual gifts for, and I'm going to run over a few minutes here, so bear with me. Number four, Chafer lists, is intercession. You see, Christ is right now interceding for us in heaven. He says here, intercession in which ministry Christ contemplates the weakness and immaturity of his own who are in heaven. I love Romans 8.34, which says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, notice, who is at the right hand of God. That's where he's at right now. He's at the right hand of God. And he is interceding for us. He is praying. He is advocating for us right now in the presence of the Father. And that's very encouraging to me. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, what? To make intercession for them. This is part of his ministry because he didn't, he didn't stop. Once he got into heaven, he continues to minister on our behalf. He is right now interceding on my behalf and your behalf and the, on the behalf of all of uh, God's children, those who have exercised faith in Christ. Not only does he, ad, not only does he intercede for us, but he advocates uh, on our defense before the Father. Now, 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, because it's never the will of God that we sin. But the reality is we do. We have a sin nature. We live in a fallen world. We fight battles on three fronts, on the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so John says, if anyone sins, talking about Christians here, because we do, he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he's advocating. He is our attorney. He is our representative. And the term advocate there translates the Greek word parakletos. Parakletos. That's the same word that Jesus used when describing the Holy Spirit when he called him the comforter. It's a legal term. It refers to a defense attorney, somebody who, who, who represents you in a court of law. And so here, Jesus is our advocate in heaven because Satan comes along and he says, so-and-so committed a sin. And they did this, and they, and they gossiped, and they lied, and they lusted, and whatever it happens to be. And Jesus says, yes, they did, and my blood covers that, and my blood covers that, and my blood covers that, and my blood covers that. Because we have an advocate right now in heaven who is advocating uh, before the Father, and he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, that's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me. Not only that, but he is also building up the place where he has gone to re uh, prepare. Remember that Jesus told the disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he's doing in heaven. This is part of his ministry of his work in heaven. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So you see, you see all this work that he's continuing to do on our behalf? Uh, so he's gone to prepare a place for us. And then lastly, number seven, uh, he is expecting or waiting until the moment when by the Father's decree, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of the Messiah. 
not by human agencies, but by the resistless, crushing power of the returning king. You see, back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, it says, but, having, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down where? At the right hand of God. This was after his ascension. And what's he waiting on? Verse 13 says, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And that is when he returns, Revelation 19, and he puts down all rebellion, human, satanic, and demonic. And then in Revelation 20, he establishes his kingdom on the earth, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will rule in absolute righteousness. And we are looking forward to the return of the king. We're looking forward to the return of the king. Now, I went a few minutes over, so you'll have to uh, bear with me on that. Before we... Well, why don't we go ahead and wrap it up, y'all, if we don't have any other questions. We'll just wrap it up with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening to take this time to look into your word, that these uh, uh, matters can be brought to our attention concerning the resurrection, the ascension, and the session of Christ right now in heaven. And, uh, Father, these are things that pertain to the role of the Son of God in our salvation. And, uh, Father, we are so thankful that we can study these things, that we can take this time to look into your word. Father, we just pray as we go forth that we will be challenged by these things, that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, now next week we're going to pick up, we're going to look at the uh, return of the Son of God with the saints, um, or for the saints and with the saints. So we're going to be looking at some eschatological matters next time we get together. So it should be a fun discussion. So anyway, we'll we'll leave it at that. But I wish you all a blessed week, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm.